0: Today's scripture reading um, will be from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Good morning. I am really glad that we can be with you, or I can be with you this morning. Is not the ideal setting, but I really wanted to finish off the study that we've been doing on faith from Hebrews chapter 11. And though we finished that chapter last week, I feel the conclusion is really in the first three verses of chapter 12. And this is where we really get the application of what chapter 11 is trying to teach us. Now let me back up just a little bit, once again, to, to set the stage of this whole letter of Hebrews. Years before this letter was written, the gospel of Christ had come to this group of people, Hebrew people of the Jewish faith, and if we go back to chapter 2 of Hebrews and and verse 3, we learn there how the gospel came to them. It says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In other words, this gospel was given to this community of Jews by the people who were with Jesus. This is a first-hand eyewitness account of the gospel passed on to these people, people who knew and were with Jesus himself. In fact, verse 4 goes on to say, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought to these people by the apostles, These people, then, were the recipients of a powerful presentation of the gospel, and it's apparent that some of this Jewish community had believed. They believed and opened their hearts and received the message of the apostles, received Christ as Lord and Savior. They fully and genuinely embraced it and formed a church. There were others among them, however, who were impressed, intellectually convinced, who actually understood the gospel to some degree, who are drawn to it, who are attracted to it, and associated with the church. This would be consistent with what Jesus said when he was teaching about the wheat and the tares uh, growing together, right? You would have believers and non-believers in the same community who would be very difficult to separate. Well, there are people who are interested, but not genuinely, genuinely excuse me, converted. Well, this group of people who had come together as a church... Began to face persecution, like all the followers of Jesus at the time. So the ones who had genuinely accepted Christ, who were solid, needed to be encouraged. But the ones who had just accepted the gospel intellectually, but had made no heart commitment, they were getting nervous and were considering stepping away. They were in danger then of sliding back into their Judaism. And so throughout this letter, there are repeated calls, though this letter are to the solid believers, there are repeated calls for these others not to step away, not to go back. Uh, For example, in chapter 2, verse 3, he writes, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? In other words, you've come this far, don't neglect this salvation which was preached by the apostles and confirmed by miracles. That's the first warning he gives. They're warned again in chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, he says, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. We talked about that last week, where your ancestors tested, were tested and tried, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Don't be like that hard-headed, unbelieving group of Israelites who were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief. And then verse 12, he says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But rather, in verse 14, we share in Christ, we, if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And the most familiar warning comes in chapter 6, verse 4, and you'll remember this, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, I I want to stop there just a second, because this needs to be clarified. Because those who hold to the idea that one can never, or or excuse me, uh, that one can lose their salvation, will point to these verses and say, see, this is what we're talking about. But that's not what the writer is saying here. So who are these people he's describing then? Who are being enlightened? Uh, who has tasted the heavenly gift? Who has shared in the Holy Spirit? Who's tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come? Well, think about it a minute. None of those terms are ever used anywhere in the Bible to describe salvation. None of them. These verses don't talk about transformation. They don't talk about regeneration, or the new birth, or conversion. They don't talk about justification, and salvation, and sanctification. No, these are the words used to describe the experience of those who heard the apostles, saw their miracles, and signs, and wonders. And in that sense, they were enlightened. They were made aware. In that sense, they tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the powers of heaven. They shared in the Holy Spirit, coming through the apostles, and the signs and wonders and gifts of the, of the Spirit. They tasted the good word of God, and they tasted the powers of the age to come. They were tasters, not consumers. You remember in Gospel, uh, excuse me, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, a few weeks ago, we, we spent some time on this passage. You remember when Jesus, talking to the 5,000 after he had fed them, And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. You can't just taste Jesus and expect to be saved and go to heaven. He's warning that then, uh, comes in verse 6, It is impossible for those who have tasted and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. In other words, if you've heard the gospel, if you've heard the message of Christ, if you've understood it, you're enlightened and you've seen the power of the Holy Spirit at work in others, and still you turn your back, and if you do this purposefully, you can't be renewed to repentance. Why? That's, that sounds so harsh. doesn't sound like a loving God. And the reason is because you can't have any more exposure to Revelation than that. If you hear the Word, and you see the power, and you still turn your back you'll be guilty of, again, crucifying the Son of God and putting Him to open shame. Listen to what the writer says in chapter 6, verse 6. To their loss, the ones that have done this, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. The phrase, crucifying the Son of God, means they're holding Him up to contempt the word is, he uses here is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It means to disgrace someone in a public manner. There are so many people that tried Jesus, right? They tried the church, but it, it didn't work for them. So they left the church, and they denigrate the church, and they denigrate Jesus. They are disgracing Jesus and disgracing his bride. And as the phrase goes, there will be hell to pay Very literally. Jesus accepted the disgrace once for all at the cross. He's not going to do it again. Well, Pastor, what about my kids who were brought up in the church and now have left? Is there no hope for them then? My answer to that, that much depends on any true decision they have made for Christ when they were younger. You now, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, this is a really encouraging verse in this situation, uh, verse 38 and 39, "...for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord." Our children are in the Lord's hands, and we need to continue to pray from the, for them. It's God's call, but we cannot give up up asking God to draw them back from their decisions when they were younger. Now, there's another strong, strong warning in chapter 10, starting in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Jesus provided the one sacrifice needed. There is no other possibility if you reject that. He goes on to say in verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Then he makes this statement. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's only dreadful if you disgrace and trample and insult the gift of his only son. So, the writer is calling his readers to embrace Christ completely by faith, putting away all the rules and regulations that's encumbered them, and to embrace salvation by faith alone, which brings righteousness. And as we went through the amazing accounts in chapter 11, we saw what the writer was trying to get across to his readers, and therefore to us. And that is to show that salvation comes by faith and faith alone. That those who are God's children walk by faith as well. Now, in the first three verses of chapter 12, we find that Jesus now is the ultimate model of faith. And this becomes his conclusion of chapter 11. Understanding all of chapter 11, he says, here's now what we need to do. It starts with, therefore which means based on what we've just read in chapter 11, verse 1, "...therefore let us run with perseverance," the race marked out for us. It is the race of faith. They all ran it. They were blessed in the running, and they endured to the end. And in the running, many suffered horrible persecution, some to the point of death and they did it with great courage. So based upon these testimonies, we are called to run the race of faith. Now the Apostle Paul often uses that metaphor of running a race, and one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament that addresses that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, where Paul says, Therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. You know, I, I doubt Paul was a jogger, who ran for the sake of running or just for better health. I'm not speaking against exercise at all. But I think there are a lot of Christian spiritual joggers in the world who jog and jog and jog, but who never actually step into the race to accomplish the goal that God has put before them. Paul says, I don't run that way. I I run with a purpose, and that purpose is Jesus, and to accomplish what He has called me to do. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says to the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you? What happened? You stopped. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says there that he's been faithful and he wants the Philippians to be faithful, to appear as lights in the world. And he says, as you hold firmly to the word of life, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, or for no purpose, no goal, no victory, no triumph, no reward. And again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus Now you know there are some who say you shouldn't be doing things for a prize and I ask why not well that, that's that's wrong a wrong motive really Paul says I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Yes, we do it for the love of God, absolutely. But the prize is heaven and being with Christ for eternity. And I want him to say to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. You ran well, and here's the prize I promised you. Paul was highly motivated to run his spiritual race with a goal in mind. So just as Paul did, the writer of Hebrews encourages all his readers to run this race. The Christian life is a race. Now let's first look at the event. In verse 1 he says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, some of those he's writing to were genuinely transformed. We we talked about that, genuinely born again. And this this would be a call to them to be faithful in the race, and to run with all their might, and to run with endurance. Then there were the others who were literally, or intellectually, convinced about the gospel, but hadn't really even entered the race. They were, they were jogging. But he's talking in general to the community of people who have at least outwardly identified with Christ, who make up a church, and he's encouraging them who have not yet entered the race to get into the race, and for those who are in the race to run with all their might. We all need to be encouraged, don't we, to either get into the race or to stay in the race and to run it with all of our might and with all of our strength. A friend of uh, my friend in India, who tunes in to our service on Facebook each each Sunday, sent me a quote by J.C. Riley uh, just last week. And J.C. Riley says this, It "It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice, follow Christ, believe in Christ, confess Christ, requires much self-denial. Hmm. Christian life is a race which demands a lot of effort. It's not a sprint. It's not even a middle distance race. It's a marathon that lasts all of our life. And the entrance into the race is the new birth. Salvation by faith in the perfect and complete work of Christ. And apart from faith in Christ, we're not even in the race. We're on the sideline. Once we become a believer, we must encourage one another, as a writer is doing here, to run with all of our might, not to jog, not to walk, not to sit down, take a rest, not to fall back. That's what he's getting at in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, when, when he told them, "...and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching." Folks, the Holy Spirit is calling us to run. A question that we need to ask ourselves from time to time is, are we still running? Or have we slowed down to a jog or perhaps even a walk? Or have we actually sat down to rest? We are in a faith race, a marathon that lasts all of our life. When we're talking about running a race, the assumption is that the runner does whatever they need to do to be in the shape that they need to be in to endure the race to the very end. Now, Amos, uh, in the Old Testament, in Amos chapter 6, verse 1 says, "'Woe to you who are complacent, and to you who feel secure.'" Folks, when we get complacent and when we feel secure, we're okay, everything seems to be going fine. It's easy to let down our guard. It's easy to relax in our spiritual disciplines. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, Hebrews tells us. The word for perseverance that's used means a patient, enduring, sustaining, perseverance. The Bible dictionary goes on to say that this word in the New Testament refers to, and I quote, the characteristic of a person who is not swerved from their deliberate purpose and their uh, loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings, end quote. There will be obstacles. Yes, there will be problems. We will be weary, and we will get tired and and distracted, but we remain under this challenge, and we persevere, and we don't give up. You know, there's an expression that's out there that says, let go and let God. You know, from a biblical perspective, I get it. We need to stop trying to control and manipulate, and, and then let God do His work in and through us, and let God use us to accomplish His will. But in some circles, that expression, I think, can become an easy out or an easy excuse for us. I just let God do it. I'll I'll sit back and relax, and I'll let go and and let God. And I'll do that in faith, right? I'll, I'll watch Him do it. Science sounds kind of spiritual, but we're in a warfare. It's a boxing match. Paul uses all these metaphors. It's a wrestling match. It's an agonizing marathon of a race. And we're in it for life and with the power of the Holy Spirit. As Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your might. Now secondly, we have encouragement. What is the encouragement in these verses? Well, again, beginning in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses... That's the encouragement to run the race because of this cloud of witnesses. Now we need to remove from our minds, listen carefully, we need to remove from our minds the imagery of a stadium. And all these people, all these great heroes of the faith, sitting up there in the bleachers, cheering us on, saying, Go, 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 yay! That's not the point. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. I've I've heard it explained that way. So if that's not the case what is this cloud of witnesses then Well we just met them in chapter 11 it is talking about all those great heroes of the faith and we have no doubt been told that we have all these people witnessing us running the race of life and cheering us on but that's the wrong concept a wrong imagery You know in a legal court case if we have a witness at a trial what's their responsibility to give testimony to the truth, right? That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here. So the question then is, to what does this cloud of witnesses give witness? To what do they all give testimony? They are giving witness to, or testimony to, the life of faith. They are not witnessing us, as in watching us. They are witnesses to the power of faith, to the wisdom of faith, to the righteousness of faith, to the blessings of faith. Every one of them are listed to testify to the fact that the righteous shall live by faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to the power of faith, let us run the same race of faith. Why? Because the results are worth it. That's what they're telling us. The results are worth it. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, "...become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain." And even though they didn't receive the promise in their day, the promise was fulfilled in Christ. In his death and resurrection, all that they had hoped for was to be realized, and they now have entered into the fullness of that realization. We in ourselves, we're frail, we're weak, but we should be encouraged because we belong to this mighty company of runners in the race of faith. Not only those in Hebrews chapter 11, but all the apostles in the New Testament, and all the great men and women of faith that have gone before us. They were all winners, as we also will be. Because the God of yesterday is the God of today, and He's the God of tomorrow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13 tells us. Uh, King David says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart. There's another element here besides the event and the encouragement, and that's the things that hinder that he refers to. Again, back still in verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, in order to run effectively you've got to get rid of useless weight, right? And when you're out jogging and practicing, I've seen people often wear uh, sweatsuits. They'll have, perhaps, weights on their wrists and on their ankles to to help them uh, build up strength. But when, when they get into the race, you throw all those things off because they're going to slow you down. They're going to get in the way. They're going to hinder you. Now, what's he talking about here with that metaphor? Well, the Greek actually says to lay aside or cast off all weight. And the word for weight is ogkos, not ashkosh, but ogkos, referring to whatever is prominent, a protuberance, a bulk, mass, hence a burden, weight, or encumbrance. What's he, what's he referring to with this weight or this encumbrance? Well, first of all, it's not sin. Because he refers to sin as well in the same verse. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so e- easily entangles us. These are two things that slow us down, two things that entangle us or encumber us. First, the weight, and second, the sin. So if the weight isn't sin, what is it? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically here, but I think it's obvious when we look at the context of the letter to the Hebrews. And you always have to do that first as you try to understand a scriptural passage. What was dragging down the Jewish believers in this new community, in this new church, was what? What was holding them back? What was weighing them down? What baggage were they still carrying around? Well, it was the weight of their former Judaistic legalism, the rabbinic traditions, and all the Sabbath observances. It wasn't easy for them to let them go. It was ingrained in them from childhood. And that's why in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, "...don't let anybody hold you to a Sabbath, or a new moon, or a feast day, or a festival." Why? Because that's a shadow that goes away when substance uh, arrives, right? The substance is Jesus. And Paul in Galatians chapter 3 asks, Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, going back to the law? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? or by your believing what you heard. So also Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. You see, the people were holding on to the temple, holding on to the priests, holding on to the rituals. They were holding on to the ceremonies. That's why all through this letter to the Hebrews, the writer says, there is a better priesthood, and a better sacrifice, and even a better temple, and a better covenant. And in chapter 6, he says, let's move on. Leave those things behind. Get away from drinking milk. Start getting into something solid. We can never run by faith, trusting God to lead us, if we're hanging on to the past religious practices, pointless ceremonies, traditions, rituals, and rules. Don't get stuck in the past. See what God is doing now and how he wants to do it now. Trust him. So he says, drop all the old weights and the sin which so easily entangles us. The Greek word refers to something that tangles us up and prevents quote prevents or retards running. Now, it wasn't too long ago I was uh, I, I enjoy watching uh, track and field events on YouTube and I was watching this one college track meet on YouTube. and it was a, a men's race a number of times around going around the track. I, I, don't, I don't remember what distance it was, but one of the guys was way out ahead when the last hundred meters, A wind blew up on the field and blew some kind of streamer out on the track as the lead guy was running, and the streamer loosely tangled up around his feet. He didn't trip and fall, but he had to hobble the rest of the way as the rest of the runners passed him by. (laughs) That's what sin does in our life, if we allow a foothold. If we allow sin to remain in our life, it will entangle us and make us useless in God's hands. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, "...therefore rid yourselves of all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind." Those are sins that entangle. Paul gives us a whole list of things that are attributed to the sinful nature in Galatians 5. He says, "...the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft." Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So Paul, Peter, and the writers of Hebrews all say, get rid of them. We can't be running the race of faith if we're tangled in sin. One commentator wrote, and I quote, Sin at its heart is always unbelief. You always engage in an act of unbelief when you sin. We all do. Whenever we sin, we believe we will get gratification in a way that God says we won't. So when we sin, we are saying, I don't believe you, God. This is what I want. This is what I will do. I reject what you say about it. You believe the lie, he says, rather than the word of God, so that all sin is, in the end, Of a form of unbelief, end quote. Something to ponder. Then we come to the example that the writer of Hebrews wants us to really focus on in verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, he says, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The course has been set, the weights and hindrances have been stripped off. The race is underway. We have the encouragement of others who have run before us. But beyond all that, there's one example to whom we must look, and that is to Jesus Christ Himself. When Paul was encouraging young Timothy as a newly placed pastor, using examples of a soldier, and an athlete, and a farmer, and even a teacher, trying to encourage Timothy to run the race well, after he says all that, he says, Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Get your eyes and hearts off of everything else, and focus on Jesus Anyone who runs a race competitively knows that you've got to look straight ahead at the finish line. If you look to the left, a runner is going to pass you on the right. And the more you look around, the more chances are that you're going to stumble. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Again in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And that's what our writer is telling us here in Hebrews. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why do we want to look at him? Because he's a perfect example. He is, as verse 2 tells us, the author and perfecter of faith. It's where our faith comes from, and in whom our faith is built and perfected. Why is He the perfect example? Because He gave up everything, equality with God, trusting His Father by becoming man, even unto death. Did He want to go to the cross? Well, humanly speaking, no. Father, let this cup pass from Me. That that was the human aspect of Him speaking. But did He trust His Father to take Him through the cross and out to the other side? Absolutely. Did he trust that the shame would only be temporary, only for a little while on earth, culminating in in his horrible death on the cross? Absolutely. He believed God would take him through the cross, out the other side of the grave, and set him at his right hand back in heaven. That's faith. That's faith that faced a crisis the likes of which no human being has ever faced except him. That's how great his faith was, to become alienated from God, to bear all the sins of all the people throughout human history who would ever believe, and yet to emerge triumphant. And why did he do that? Verse 2, Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy? First of all, it was the salvation that was being provided for all of us who were condemned. That gave him so much joy that he could accomplish that for us. But there is also the joy of once again being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And folks, that's what's waiting for us. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then listen to what he says in the very next verse. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us. Listen. God raised him up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Where? At the right hand of the throne of God. Because that's where he's sitting. Isn't that amazing? I love what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Whew. We share in the same joy because one day we will also sit at the right hand of the Father, enthroned with Jesus as joint heirs with him, our future reward. And even in the struggle now, there is joy. Because here's the key, the victory is already guaranteed. The victory is already guaranteed. We win the race. And then verse 3 of Hebrews 12, and we close with this. Consider him. Think about Jesus. Ponder all that Jesus went through and the victory that he provides. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Talking about us. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Folks, when we keep our eyes on Jesus and the ultimate goal, it's so much easier to make all the necessary sacrifices to gain that final, eternal reward. Like Abel, like Noah, like Enoch, like Abraham, like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and like Moses and all the rest of the witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance a race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you this morning for being the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that you have provided all that we need, that we can have that faith, that we can step out in faith. We can look not only to the examples of the past, and there are so many examples, but that we can look ahead and we can look up and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ. Focus on Jesus. Take all of our eyes and all of our thoughts and all of our worries off of the things that are all around us, and let us get, get, get our eyes and our hearts back, focused on Jesus and Jesus only. Father, I pray that you do that new work in us to help us, to give us strength, to make those decisions on a daily basis, to trust you, to follow you, to step out in faith, knowing that you are God. You are the great I am from beginning to end. You never change. And in our faith, it will be credited to, to us as righteousness. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray that you bless throughout this week, that you'd guard each one of us, and that you'd work in us powerfully. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. And we're going to get into Paul's letter to the Colossians. Amazing letter to the Colossians. And I'm excited about getting into that with you uh, when, when we get back. So the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.